Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am Richard Kaufman, your host. Guys, this is going to be an amazing episode. Get your pen and your paper out. Um, We're going to be talking about resilience in life, in business. But first, I want to thank our sponsors. Um, Without you guys, we would not be who we are. Um, I want to thank our sponsors are another podcast that I've been on a couple of times is called double B creates. And it's an amazing podcast. They have great guests and they also have three different hosts. So it's, it's a fun show to listen to. So check out double B creates guys. This is going to be a great episode. My friend Mark is going to talk to us about resilience. He is a Marine and I love Marines because there's no, no such thing as a former Marine. Once a Marine and always a Marine. Um, and he did some great things in uniform, and I think he's doing some better things out of uniform. So welcome to the show, Mark. How are you, brother? Great, Richard. Hey, thanks, brother. I really appreciate the invite and being on your show, uh, and I'm really excited to be here and talk with you today, man. Thank you. I love it. How's your day going so far? Awesome. Uh, like we used to say, outstanding over excellent uh, and continuing to get better, man. I'm loving it. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. And I, I love everything that you're doing, um, especially we're in these hard times of the pandemic. And I love uh, a couple articles that you've written about, you know, resilience. And I definitely want to get into that. Yeah. But first of all, I want to thank you for your service. Um, I love all, I love all my veterans. I have a special place in my heart for Marines because they have a certain mindset that, once a Marine, always a Marine. There's no such thing as an ex-Marine. And I think, by the way, you have the best uniforms in the military. Just throwing that out there. I appreciate it. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about, you know, where you're from, uh, and what state you were born and raised in, and what little, what kind of little boy was Mark? Yeah, no, uh, appreciate the question. Uh, obviously, uh, as you mentioned, I was in the Marine Corps, but prior to that, uh, I was actually born and uh, originally I'm from the state of Kentucky, uh, was born in Lexington, lived there in uh, Lexington for quite a bit growing up. And my father, uh, who in fact was a Marine, had two tours of Vietnam. Um, he he was actually an ordained Baptist minister as well as an engineer. Uh, interesting dynamic there. And uh, he left his job uh, working at IBM and decided to uh, go in the ministry full time. Pastor churches, which took us out to Kansas City, Missouri, where I lived for a while, as when he went to the uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, to get his graduate, uh, two graduate degrees, actually, in theology. And then then we uh, he pastored some churches there in the Kansas City, Missouri area. And then from there, we moved to West Virginia, where he pastored and built another church uh, there. And then from that, we uh, we moved back to Lexington, uh, where he decided to uh, put a hold on ministry, and he went back to engineering full time at IBM. So kind of kind of that uh, midwestern, but predominantly southern area uh, is where I grew up. So I joke with people all the time that. Uh, you know, I'll have colleagues and friends of mine where I'll throw out a, a, a Southern phrase, you know, kind of like the old joke that uh, you hear Jack, uh, Jeff Foxworthy talk about, you know, there are certain words in the South that people don't really translate well, like, you know, Jeet. 
and says, what is a jeet? He says, no, that, that, that means, did you eat? Uh, they're, they're asking you a question. And so that, that really was the foundation for me because it was all coupled with doing the right thing, treating people as God's creatures. And at the same time, a very, very solid work ethic. I cut tobacco, baled hay growing up uh, at age of eight, started doing that. And so just a strong work ethic, a strong family um, background, a religious uh, family, a Christian family. And, and so that was what you do. You know, you give back, you contribute. Uh, it's not about individuals, it's about us and we pull together. So from a very early age, the concept of team and resilience was I was raised with, and now, I was blessed you, to have that. Were you a good student also? Yeah, actually, um, I did pretty well in school. Um, I, I actually uh, did pretty well and, and uh, ended up on the honor roll several times and worked really hard at that um, because that's what was expected in our house. You know, you put forth your best effort in whatever you do. You don't have step anything. And school was no different in our family. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Now, were you, uh, an athlete at all? Yeah, I played, uh, I played various sports. I played, uh, baseball, uh, played football. I also wrestled and those were the predominant sports that I played all the way through basically elementary, um, and basketball. And then up through my middle school and senior year in high school. So, yeah. Now, I got, you know, because I, I've interviewed hundreds of, of people now and a lot and a lot of the high achievers that I've talked to wrestled in in school. Yeah. And I think it takes I think it's the hardest sport in, um, you know, in school, mm-hmm. because, you know, a lot of your training and a lot of your having to cut weight comes around Thanksgiving. Yeah. Christmas, and when you're cutting weight. And there's some kind of discipline where everybody else is, you know, eating turkey and all this dressing <laughs> and you're sitting there eating chicken and broccoli with nothing on it. Exactly. The cutting phase. So do you think that mindset helped you um, in, in your future? Yeah, I think it absolutely did, because it's it's about establishing disciplines in your life early on. Right. And, and having the structure to do that, uh, whether it's losing weight, whether it's, you know, putting in the time to finish that assignment, whether it's, um, you know, going out and having to, you know, sweep the barn and, and, and there's every critter in the free world running in and out and messing it up every time you do it. But it, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is, I think it's about perseverance, discipline. Uh, and, and you have to just say, it's going to make me better. And, and I think the results of that, you see that in the end, sometimes when you're in the middle of it, trust me, as you're sitting there staring at people woofing down turkey legs and, and, and you're eating oxygen, um, it, it's not fun. But you look on the other side and look down the road as to what the payoff or what the reward will be for that hard work discipline that you apply. And also, I think, you know, because, you know, I'm not a Grant Cardone guy per se. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I loved his book and his his newest book and what he says kind of relates back to wrestling that if you get pinned, it's nobody else's fault. Exactly. Um, but if you win, 
you get all the glory. Right. So it's kind of <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're either a hero or a zero. It's, it, it's, it's all up to you and you can, there's nobody to blame. Yeah, there, there, there is no I kind of won or I kind of lost. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I was raised that there, there are absolutes and, and then there's things you have to work through and consider and make good choices. And it's funny you mentioned wrestling because people say, well, you know, you're not really on a team because you wrestle individually and you go out there each match and stuff. Right. But your contribution to the team in that moment makes a difference of whether we win or we don't. And you could win all your matches being a two-day tournament and literally either on points or pin, every single person you wrestled and your team still loses, you know? And, and the thing is, it's not about your individual efforts, about your individual efforts contribute to the whole. And that's yeah. the point. And I love that, you know, because I'm a big sports geek, um, always have been. And I just interviewed a guy. Actually, I released an interview yesterday, a, a gentleman named Reggie Rusk. And he actually, an uh, um, NFL player, actually came out of the University of Kentucky. And he was talking about it's never the name on the back of the jersey. It's the name on the front of the jersey that matters. That's right. So now tell us, you get, you know, you, jo- you joined the military. Mm-hmm. Um Tell us your recruiting story, because I love hearing everybody's different recruiting stories. Yeah, it it was really interesting. Um, As I said, you know, my actually my entire family structure history of military is my father was in the Marine Corps, two uncles, three cousins, grandfathers on each side, Um, you know, and and I was basically raised that you have an obligation living in a free country to contribute and give back to that. That, that was taught to me and, and my sisters at a very early age. And whatever way giving back looks like, that's important, right? And not to be selfish uh, because you're blessed to be here. You're blessed to have the things you have and you need to help those who do not and to contribute to the greater good. Okay. So, I, I took all that on at an early age and raised, and then there was a period of time where I kind of, you know, was in that phase, freshman, sophomore year. I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do exactly. I, I knew I was going to work on getting an education, but, you know, that's kind of the thing you hear all the time from your teachers. And, and <clears throat> interesting enough, um, I remember my junior year, I walked around the corner to go to lunch. And as I did, there was a Marine recruiter, never forget it, uh, Staff Sergeant Smith, C.C. Smith. And he was standing there in dress blues. And, and I had seen pictures growing up of my father at various, you know, Marine Corps ball and various ceremonies and details and stuff. And it, but, but I walked around the corner, he was standing there, and I said, oh, my gosh, whoa, right? <laughs> And, and, I, and I was getting a flashback visual to all of those photos that I had seen of my dad at an events and stuff growing up as a young kid. And it was, I went over and talked to him. We, we chatted a bit and I said, you know, my, my dad was a Marine and he goes, uh, he goes, uh, yeah, he goes, and he still is, you know? And I said, Oh, yes, sir. And, and so we started chatting some more. He handed me a couple of bumper stickers. He says, Hey, here, he goes, make sure you take these home and give these to your dad. And I said, oh, okay. 
And I said, I said, well, can I get one? He goes, nope, but you can earn one. <laughs> and I, I remember saying, yes, sir. And, and so he said, here, here's my card. You're a junior now, you know, so you, you know, you give that some thought, you focus on school doing well, so forth, so on. And, and I'll be here and uh, feel free to call me anytime. And then fast forward the tape now, senior year. And I remember uh, it was my senior year. And my buddy and I went up and I said, hey, man, let's go by and talk to the recruiters. He goes, yeah, OK. So we go in there and I'll never forget. I was in there and I, I went and talked to every branch of service. Right. And it was interesting because, you know, you each one has a various approach they take. And so it's you know, Air Force. Yeah, we we're not like X, Y, Z, ABC. You know, um, the Army was, you know, we'll. We'll give you a billion dollars, you know, to go to college for the rest of your life. Okay, got it. And the Navy was, hey, you can travel the seas and go to different parts in the set. Yeah. And when I, I remember, because I was supposed to come back, the Air Force recruiter literally cut me short in, in the interview or the process and said, hey, I got to take care of something. Why don't you come back tomorrow? I came back the next day and he, he wasn't there, the Air Force recruiter. And so the Marine recruiter was there. And, and I remember it was Staff Sergeant Smith and he said, uh, Hey, and, and I'll never forget this. This has been probably a good nine, 10 months now. He said, uh, Holman, right? I said, yes, sir. He goes, yeah, I remember you at the high school. I said, yes, sir. He goes, well, what are you doing here? So we started chatting and I said, uh, I said, well, I'm going to talk to the Marines too. He goes, well, you want to talk to me now while you're waiting for the Air Force crew? I said, sure. Came in, sat down, talked to him, and I'm going to tell you something. He, his, his approach was very basic. It was, this is who we are, this is what we do, we protect the nation, and if you think you have what it takes to be a part of that, you can certainly put forth the effort and earn the title of Marine. It's not going to be given to you. It's not going to be handed. And everything that I had, these kind of comments, listening to my dad and my uncles talk. Uh, kept coming back to me. And that's when at that moment, it was funny because my buddy who was with me uh, and I went home and I'll never, I'll never forget this. I looked at my buddy. I said, hey, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a Marine. I, I know it. I, I think I'm going to be a Marine, man. I, I feel confident. He goes, yeah. He goes, man, you know, I love you like a brother, but th that is never me. And, you know, and he, he ended up joining the Air Force, you know, which is his thing. But I remember I took that information. I went home. I was really excited. I walked in and, you know, and I got back uh, right about supper time and I walked in and my mom was in the kitchen and I said, hey, mom. And she goes, oh, hey, how you doing, hon? And we were talking and, and she said, I said, hey, mom, I went to talk to the Marine recruiter. I got some information. I want to be a Marine. I'll never forget. She looked at me. She smiled. She goes, that's nice. That's nice, honey. She says, go ahead on upstairs. Wash your hands. Dinner's almost ready. I said, OK, I, kind of dismissive, but OK, whatever. And then. Uh, I, I came back downstairs. My mom was in the kitchen. I walked in the living room. My father was sitting there and he always had the newspaper up reading it. I'll never forget. He, he sat there and he had the paper up and he talked through the paper at me. Right. So I said, Hey dad, he goes, Hey boy, what are you doing? I said, Oh, you know, David and I we went up there to see recruiters. He goes, yeah. And, and, and the paper's still up now. The newspaper's still fully up. And he says to me, he goes, and, and I go, well, Dave is not really sure. I said, but you know what? I said, <clears throat> I'm going to be a Marine. First time at, at this point, I was 17. 
he drops the corner of the paper, looks over it straight at me and goes, really? And I said, yeah. And he goes, did you tell your mother that? I said, well, I did, but you know, she didn't really respond. He goes, mm, okay. So he goes, have a seat. It's time for dinner. Let's go. I sat down. We're sitting there. We're eating about 15 minutes. And my dad's looking at me. He's looking at her. He's looking at me, looking at her. He goes, he looks at my mom goes, Hey, Carolyn, did your son tell you what he did today? He goes, Oh yeah. He, he and David were out, you know, getting some information. Did he tell you anything else? I said, no. And she said, I, I, I don't, I don't think so. What did I miss? And he goes, looked right at me and goes, go ahead. Tell your mother that. And I said, Mom, I went and talked to the Marine recruiter today, and I want to be a Marine. She burst out crying. She burst out crying, left the dinner table, ran upstairs, and he goes, well, now you've done it. And, and I said, well, I, I don't get it. She was with my dad, married at the time when he deployed and did two tours in Vietnam, was deployed to the Bay of Pigs. Uh, all of this stuff she lived through as a wife with two young children at the time. And so I didn't really have any understanding of that. And so, so, so at that point, my mom, you know, kind of collected and, and he goes, I'm going to tell you something, this is not going to be easy because I need a parental consent. I was 17. So basically they held off, held off, met with my recruiter, came over the house, talked to us and everything. They held off. My mom was really, you know, wasn't comfortable. And my dad sat down and we had like a two hour conversation. And he said, if this is what you want to do, I support you. He goes, don't do it because I did it and your uncles did it and your cousin did it. You do it because you want to do it. He goes, because let me tell you, when the bullets start flying, you're not going to remember any of that. He goes, and you need to be there for the right reasons. And he began to explain to me, which he had never talked about, his time in country, his time in CONUS, OCONUS. And he went through all of it. And about two hours later, he said, you know, every generation has it's group of warriors that stand and protect what we have. You have to be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. And if you're not, this isn't for you. This is not a game. This is not a part-time thing. This is real. And he says, so you think about that. So I, I mold on that for a while, a couple of weeks. <clears throat> By this time we were getting into, this is 83 and my birthday was in February. I was going to turn 18. He says, I'll tell you what to do. I support you 110%. And so does your mother, but you're going to make your own decisions. And he goes, and our mom came back and says, if this is what you want, I'll sign. So my recruiter, I called him. He came back over. Uh, this is January. Came in. I went to MEPS, took my test, physical, ASVAP, everything, the delay entry program in the Marine Corps, uh, literally on my mom's birthday, January the 3rd of 1983. <laughs> so Happy birthday, Mom. Now, what, what uh, military occupational specialty did you pick? I wanted to supply and logistics uh, in the Marine Corps. And, of course, in supply and logistics, there's the air side and then there's the ground side. And I was always attached to ground infantry units. Um, everywhere we went somewhere and as far as uh, forward deployments, uh, things of that nature. So that's what I did. And uh, I did that for quite a while in the Marine Corps and then uh, – Later on, went on recruiting duty, and then uh, towards the end of my career, became a career recruiter, and then now, retired how many, out. How many years did you do in the Marine Corps total? Uh, 28 years. Okay, and, and um, I'm sure you've had multiple deployments. Yeah. 
now, of course, we don't tell war stories because that's what Jocko's for. Um, right. I'm, right. Not, I'm not good at that. So, you know, I like to get to, you know, know the man behind the uniform. Um, when you finally decided to retire, mm-hmm. um, and of course, you've had multiple deployments and been there, done that, got the T-shirt multiple times. Right. Um, did you notice anything was off or did every did you come out? okay with no issues as far as any any kind of mental mental health issues i i think over time uh you you find a piece what i call center mass right uh it's different for everybody and uh no two people are alike uh but it to short answer your question yeah i i came out i came out okay and balanced um you know, and I think balance is the key word, right? So some days are better than others. Uh, some things you think of and out of nowhere, but then there's days that you're just thrilled to be here and you're blessed to have what you have in front of you. Okay. Now, uh, you know, I don't, this is like, like I said, when I, I got in touch with you, it's just like two brothers having a cup of coffee, talking to each other. Yeah. So we don't know where it's going to go, but uh, now two things, you know, when when you retired, mm-hmm. you were married at this point, correct? Yeah, yes. Um, I find that a lot of guys and girls, when they get out of the military, mm-hmm. um, or they usually um, they want to open up a t-shirt company, a hat company, liquor company, or coffee company. Mm-hmm. Um, six months later, they're ten thousand dollars in debt <laughs> and don't know what the hell just happened. Right. And, of the time it was because they didn't have that hard conversation at the kitchen table Mm -hmm. with their significant other right? until the crap hits the fan. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have an even harder conversation at the kitchen table. So what was that like when, you know, you knew your time was coming to the end of the military, Mm -hmm. but you know, what was that conversation like at the kitchen table when you decided, because, you know, all of a sudden in the military, you know, we're, we're here, we're there, we're living the dream. And our, and a lot of times our, our wives and our kids are, you know, left holding the duffel bag, as as I say. Mm -hmm. Um, But now, you know, you're going to be home for good. So what was that conversation like at the kitchen table? Um, It was, It was interesting, and and there's we had to literally go through sort of. I don't want to necessarily use the phrase getting to know each other again, but but being around a whole lot more than you were, right? Um, and when your spouse has pretty much taken on the line share of. <clears throat> of the things that need to be done in a house when you're not there. Um, it, it, you, you kind of find yourself trying to figure your place, not overstep, be respectful, but having the frank conversation about this and just admitting these things up front that, you know, I'm, I'm really not used to you being home so much. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I love it. You know, but I, you know, I have a way I've developed a way over the course of 20 some years of the way things get done that make me feel comfortable and, 
and I need you to understand that. And then we need to discuss and have conversations. And I think once it was, you know, it's kind of the unknown that you, everybody knows, but we don't talk about it. It's the unknown known is what I call it. But once we had the conversation and got it on the table and just really kind of admitted that this was different, right? So I had to kind of relearn um, how to fit into things. And, you know, and a big part of my decision to go ahead and retire was my son was at an age where in my time in the Marine Corps, I had done a lot of different things, um, but also I worked with like the Young Marines program. I worked with other organizations, um, you know, helping others, volunteering. But what I saw from a lot of kids in the Young Marines program, uh, a lot of those kids didn't really have always a male role model or a solid structure home, uh, those kind of things. And when they came there, they looked for that discipline, sense of belonging, uh, and, and they wanted to learn. What I knew was my son was at a pivotal age where I needed to be there because, like they say, if you're not there to provide that daily input and advice on a regular, your kid will start listening to someone. Hopefully it's a coach or a teacher or someone if you have to be absent, not by choice, but by profession. Um, but sometimes it's not. And sometimes there's no one. And then they start taking advice for some knucklehead buddy. And then that goes south quickly. And it's hard to undo that. It's hard to unwind that once it's been wound up. So I made the decision that it was the best thing for my family at that point. And it was so funny leading up to retirement and having this conversation with my wife, because I used to ask mentors of mine, you know, I knew I wanted to do 20 years, absolutely. And then beyond that, just keep plugging and keep doing it until I decided I was done. And I always ask them, how will you know? And they would always look at me and smile and go, you'll know. So what does that mean? And they go, you'll know. And, and I came to a point where I said, I know. And it was evident to me. And you know, I loved being a Marine. I love the Marine Corps. And like you said, once a Marine, always a Marine. And it is a very, very proud part of my life and the contribution and the people I met and bonded with, uh, lived with, uh, was in the dirt side by side with. And I'll never, ever give that up or forget that. that that's a very critical part of my life. But you have another life after you retire. And you've got to figure that out. No, exactly. that's what I want to talk about next. You yeah. Know? Um, especially, you know, because we're going to get start talking about resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though we're in the military, you know, even though we're all hua hua and hardcore and all this crap. Right. Um, we get used to getting paid on the first and the fifteenth. Yep. You know, we get used to getting BAQ, BAA, all that good stuff. Right, right. And then when you hit the streets, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to, um, including myself, you know, first off, they missed the camaraderie, mm-hmm. which I think is the biggest part. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people they don't do the whole thing, you know, so they don't get any retirement. So, you know, you're losing your, your pay literally, and then you lose your mission mm-hmm. and you get out and there, you know, like one of my friends, Nick Valentine says, and I'm, I try not to curse on my show at all, but mm-hmm. you know, he says, you know, once your feet step off base and you retire, the military does not give a crap about you. So how did you go about, you know, be, of what what rank did you retire at? 
uh, a master gunnery sergeant, E9. So, you know, you you retire as an E9, mm-hmm. but when you hit the streets, you're an E0. You know, yeah. you start all over again. Yeah. So what was your transitioning like? Well, it, I, I'm glad you asked me that because that that's a pretty interesting dynamic. Um, that when, when I transitioned, I made my mind, okay, I'm done. And then I started, you know, doing all the requisite steps and things of that nature. And what was funny is that, you know, there is information, but you have to seek the information. People don't spoon feed it to you, right? And very often, you know, anything you need to know, you're going to be informed. You're going to be briefed at formation. You're going to hear about this in a message. (laughs) Well, well, this is one of those where it's available, but you need to like, and and, and I, I phrase it this way, Richard. I think what it is, is that we as veterans, we are so ingrained and thinking of we, we don't think of me, right? And, and that mental mind shift has to occur from thinking of we, we the team, we the unit, we the platoon, to me. I need to take time for me. I need to not be as present here on active duty with day-to-day operations, and I need to get to TAPS. I need to get to TAMS. I need to uh, coordinate with an education coordinator. I need to do these things. And what's funny is uh, you have to just cut that line and say, now it's a me situation. That doesn't mean you abandon your unit. It's just maybe you were, you know, you start two years out planning, coordinating, connecting with people on LinkedIn, establishing relationships outside of the military, because that is our family right and but you don't do a lot of outside the military connecting uh taking advantage of the nonprofits that exist out there you know uh that have tons of transition programs that are free they don't cost you anything active duty while you're still on there's tons of programs to take advantage of there but but that transition in itself is something where i think it's a mental mind shift that has to occur and we don't do a good job of it we're always still thinking about we not me and then that means that you're behind. And I will tell you, my transition was, I, you know, in retrospect, when I look back at it, in 2010 is when I retired. I would have 24 months out started doing a lot of things different. Uh, you know, 18 months out done them a little bit more different. 12 months out a little bit more, and then definitely within the nine months and less, basically, you know, I had already trained my replacement, so that wasn't the issue. It was just a me problem that I couldn't separate it. And I kept taking care of mission uh, items. I kept being present for those things, being involved heavily uh, in development and stuff of these things. And I needed to step away from that sooner. And so I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't at a disadvantage. I don't, I don't really walk out of 28 years of service as a master gunnery sergeant, leading hundreds of thousands of Marines in various capacities, and then walk into corporate America, for example, and say, well, I have no idea how to leave. That's not true. Uh, I bring a lot of those transferable skills with me. The, the, the challenge is, I think, is that turning off that we slowly a little at a time prior to exiting the military and having a good plan when you walk out the door. And then you have to really stop and think hard. What is it I want to do? You know, like you said, you, you've been given direction and orders and being part of a unit uh, for years. But you have to say, you have to really stop and breathe and think about what do I want to do? Because you kind of did what the Marine Corps needed, what the mission was. But where do I see my life? 
And so you bring up a really good point earlier. I had that conversation with my wife. We talked through these things. I think it's about being open communication with people uh, in your life, building those relationships, and then planning the next step. So because I didn't do it as well, when I was on terminal leave, I will tell you that my new job, I had a new job as soon as I was on terminal leave. My new job was setting up in my office in my basement with whiteboards and the whole nine yards and having, you know, turn charts up and stuff and mapping out like an op section that I ran. And it was literally planning my next job. So my new job was to find a new job, right? <laughs> and and then th do the stuff that I didn't do 24, 18, 12 months prior to transition to retirement. You know, because and now when you, you know, a lot of people, you know, like when I first got out, you know, I did 23 years between regular army and national guard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you start looking in a newspaper and there's not many jobs out there looking for uh, tank commanders. Right. So, so you, have, right. you know, and I have a friend of mine, his name is Jim Molinelli. He has a business called done right resumes. And he actually, you know, I put a resume together and then he looked it over and he's like, this is crap. <laughs> he says you're, you know, there's way too many acronyms. Um, there's, right. You know, you have skills, but you're not putting them for transferable skills that you can actually use in a corporate world. So mm -hmm. he re rewrote it and it made sense. And I think that's a lot of problems. You know, like you think we get out, get out of the military. The world is our oyster. Millions of jobs are going to open up. And you're and we do our own resumes or you get somebody, you know, that half asses it. Mm -hmm. and, you know, you're putting 200 resumes out and you hear crickets mm -hmm. because the skills that you put on are they're not looking for tank commanders. They're looking for leaders. You know, they're looking for management. They're looking for CEOs. But if you just tell somebody, you know, I was a tank commander and I shot people from from six miles away, you know, mm -hmm. right, that's right, a transfer. Right. So what right. was it like transferring, you know, into the civilian sector in business world? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> you know, w when I transitioned, what I knew is I had a lot of knowledge and skills and between hard skills and soft skills that is needed in leadership. That That's what I knew. Um Leading teams and accomplishing a mission is very similar in the military as it is in the civilian sector. It really is. It, the difference is where ours is about percentages and casualty ratios and differentials and all that. In the corporate world, it's about profit loss, right? It's about human capital. It's about all these things. So, so it still exists. The process still exists. It's just what you count and, and value and equate and evaluate is different, but the skill is the same. And I think that's what veterans tend to lose a sight of, you know, you know, what did you do in Ramadi when X, Y, Z? Well, first thing I had to do, I had to contact, okay, so you, you went into action, right? Same thing as civilian world. It's just, you, you don't call for, you know, you know, call on target, you know, fire okay <laughs> you, you you do something different but you do something what you don't do is just sit there and wring your hands right so those skills transferred um i i did my resume like you said <clears throat> and i went through several iterations 
and reached out to some folks that I knew. And that's the other thing. I think you need to reach out to your network because we always, you know, we come from a position where I serve for years. I'm standing on two feet. I can figure this out. I can handle it. And asking for help, you know, isn't always our forte. That's not what we're great at because our pride, you know, perseverance, our resilience, we say we can get through this, right? Uh, but you didn't do it by yourself in a unit in the military. It was a team effort. You counted on each other. Well, it's the same way when you transition. You just need to employ your platoon, your company, your battalion, whatever of network, and you build that. That's your new platoon. Um, but I, I translated those skills and got assistance, and then I started going to job interviews, started applying to jobs. And, you know, like when you go to TAPS, they say, practice with a family member doing interview questions. And I was like, okay, yeah. But, you know, to be honest with you, that's great, and that's a great start. But the truth is you can only practice so much with a family member uh, because I don't think they're going to be as, you know, straightforward and, and – sort of switching up the game in the middle of the interview on you like civilian employers will do. But you need to eventually start going to job interviews. And, and I applied for tons of jobs, various different postings. And, and I went to interviews, quite frankly, th there's no such thing as a wasted interview when you go in because you have to go in, you have to present your best self, you have to be honest and upfront with people, you have to have conversations, answer some sometimes hard questions, easy questions, and some just weird questions people will ask you. But the thing is, I went to every interview that I could get. And the reason is I wanted to practice with a live human being who's not my family member, who is going to throw me curveballs, and I wanted to be able to practice getting used to that. But then there was four companies I narrowed it down to based on their mission statement, their values, those kind of things. I wanted to be a part of that company. And I went to those interviews. And it was so funny because the one company I ended up working at, <clears throat> it, when I went there, it was kind of a weird dynamic because they called me and said, oh, didn't someone contact you? I said, no. <laughs> they said, oh, well, we're doing rounds of interviews today. Can you make it here? And the, the location that I needed to get to was about an hour and a half away. I said, no problem. I'll be there. So I went in, showered, got everything squared away, got on the road, got down there. And then it was going to be rounds of interview. So I had to go to four interviews and I'll never forget. I got to the final interview and it was a panel interview. So you walk in, there's like three people in there. So there was a senior project manager and two second level, uh, well, a third level and a second level project manager. So I'm sitting there with them and I'm going through the interview. They're looking at my resume, they're reading everything. And uh, so they look at me and they go, well, tell you what, just tell us what a typical day in your life was like. And I kind of laughed and, and I, I said, I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. I said, but where I come from, no two days are alike. I said, but, but I will give you the basic day of what I dealt with. And so I explained it to him, what I did as a master gunnery sergeant, uh, running my entire operations section and what that looked like and my structure and all that. And so when I was all done explaining it, they started writing notes again on their pad. And, and like I said, this is my fourth interview that day in this company and there's three people sitting there and it's so funny because they started writing and writing and writing and then all of a sudden they stopped writing and i remember the senior program manager in the company she was really senior she goes well you know it sounds like to me that you were a project manager and and i i was stunned i was like well, we, we don't call them project managers but okay now i wasn't totally you know lost of what a project manager was, but it's just where I came from. It kind of caught me off guard. We don't call them that, right? 
And so I literally looked at her and I said, excuse me, I said, can, can I call a timeout right now during the interview? She goes, sure. I go, look, I'm just going to be straight honest with you. Everything I just told you what my normal day or as much as I could, I said, that was the gospel truth. Okay. That's what I did every single day when I came in with my team. And I said, but I, where I come from, we, we don't call it a project manager. I said, but if that's what you all call that and equate what I described to that, then yes, I, I guess I was, but I just don't want to perpetrate that I'm something that I'm not. And I want to be honest with you. She goes, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. So they went back to writing again. And I remember she stopped and looked up and said, <laughs> she goes, out of curiosity, what did you all call that where you were from? I said, well, we called that a master gunnery sergeant. And whatever happens or fails to happen is my responsibility. She goes, I love it. I started writing again. And, and so I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I, I, that's positive, but I don't know how it went. The recruiter came back to the conference room we were in, and they were all done. And he walked back over, and he said, give me a second. And he goes back inside the conference room, shuts the door, starts talking to him. He's in there about three to five minutes. He walks out and goes, walk with me to the elevator. I said, sure. I said, everything okay? He was just walked to me with, walked to the elevator with me. I said, okay. We get in the elevator. He says, look, I got to be honest. I've been working with them to fill this position that they've posted. Uh, they have like 12 people total. They've interviewed like seven or eight so far. You're like number nine, but they want to hire you like now. But, you know, by law, we have to interview the other three people, but they, they really set on you. They could change their mind, but this is where it's at. Do you have any other offers? I said, well, yeah, there's two other offers I have out there. Give me, give me two to three days max, and I will have you an answer. Could you just hold on? And I said, sure. They came back, boom. They made me an offer. They gave it to me. <clears throat> and it's so funny because HR contacted me, and this is the other part of what we don't do well. They said, well, what is your asking salary? <laughs> now, you got to understand, Richard, 28 years, no one's asked me because I have a pay chart, right? You know, what's your rank? How many years in service? That's your pay. Okay. This is your BAQ. This is your BHA. <laughs> so, so it's all settled. You don't really have a conversation about pay. And, and so I gave them a number and they go, oh, okay. And then they called me back like a couple hours later says, I'll tell you what, we'd like to extend this job offer to you at this salary. And we're going to pay you $2,000 more than you were asking. That's like, well, that, that's a win. Look at me. Woohoo. The truth is, we're horrible at negotiating salary as veterans because we don't serve in the military to be millionaires, right? We serve in the military to give back to our country and to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, right? So we don't really think, what are we worth? We know what we're worth because we have a pay scale and we earn our rank and we work hard. And we're not good at that. I didn't learn until I joined the company and as a project manager. And when I started staffing my projects, that there are pay bands based on a person's background and experience. There is a, there's a lowest salary you can put in that. Like if you're a project manager one, there is the lowest base salary you can pay them. And here's a highest. So there's a band of pay. And then uh, project manager two gets a different higher band, right? And so on. Well, my knucklehead self, I was asking for $2,000 less than the minimum that they were required to pay me just because I didn't know any different. And, and, and there's a lesson and a takeaway from that, which is you really need to do the due diligence. You really need to reach out to people. You know, and, 
And yesterday, you know, I'm I'm a big sports geek, like I said. Yeah. You know, I was watching an interview with um, Tony Romo, mm-hmm. and um, the way he got the starting job is he said, you know, I'm in my fifth year option. You know, I, I want to stay, but you're going to have to pay me. And so, the, and they, he was his, his initial base pay was like five hundred grand, and he and he said, you know what, I'll stay if you guys give me two million. So they signed him for two million, and then years later, um, the coaches were like, "Wow, we would have paid him five. Right? But thank God he only asked for two. And right? Starting quarterback. So sometimes you, have to get, you know, sometimes above what you're worth. Sometimes, yeah, is, and it'll come down to where you really want it to be. So sometimes you got to shoot a little bit higher. So you know, like in the military, sometimes you got to shoot a little higher so mm-hmm. the bullets can come down a little bit to where yeah. you hit. That's right. That's exactly right. So now, you know, like I said, you know, a lot of people got, you know, the veterans, they get out of the military, they start a business, all of a sudden it's cranking, it's doing great. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden COVID hits. Yeah. And you lose 25, 50, 75% of your business. Mm-hmm. How do companies and veterans, because, you know, I think veterans and that become um, business owners, they have something a little extra. They've got mm-hmm. that little oomph, yeah. you know, where, you know, you work until the job is complete, you don't work until not work for time. Mm-hmm. So what, how does a, a veteran or even a regular business owner, how do you become resilient when you just lost 75% of your business or maybe your whole business? Talk about resilience in business. Yeah, I think, I think resilience in life is critical. Um, and what I will say is there are there are two categories of resilience. Number one is individual resilience, and that's very, very important. The individual themselves needs to build a resilient approach towards life, situations, problems, challenges, what have you. Then there is what is known as collective resilience, and that's developing a team. So I think part and parcel, these walk hand in hand. For example, you as a a business entrepreneur owner, I think you need to build within yourself the individual resilience. That means, you know, maintaining a positive attitude, uh, reaching out to resources, doing what it needs to be done, you know, uh, above board to make things happen, and then have that goal in mind that you continue to work towards day by day, chipping away at it. And then if I think if you lead people or you own that business, there's collective resilience and you need to be able to build collectively resilient teams, you know, and where I'm at now, we actually, we actually have a professional certification that takes people through that. But, but that collective resilience is really, really important because if you look at the benefits and the takeaways, right, of what collective resilience in your business does. Like your people come to work, you know, do you create a positive climate for them, right? Or is it toxic, right? You, you've been on teams before where it was a horrible climate, right? Um, and then you have to provide a purpose. If people don't have a purpose who work for your organization, then good luck with that because now they don't even know how they fit in the bigger picture or contribute. You have to develop cohesion with people in your team. And while you're working your individual resilience, you have to collect, build collective resilience within your team because teams that have that foundation, 
of a positive climate, they have purpose, and they are cohesive. It is an actual, like a social phenomenon when you see people who persevere through this and they work through these challenges and they're communicative. They, they communicative. They speak to each other. They communicate. They solve problems together as a team, much like we did when we served on active duty, right? Uh, you learned that collective resilience within 48 hours of stepping off that bus or at OCS, uh, that you were not going to make it through this. It, you figured it out very quickly. You weren't going to make it through this by yourself. So in 48 hours, that epiphany came to you and you realized you had to pull together. Same thing in a business. People solve problems and challenges together. They work together to do that. And that collective resilience is built into that team. And you have your middle managers who facilitate team learning to make sure that the entire team is learning and sharing ideas. Senior leaders support organizational learning. Um, and they do that by making sure that there are, are solid platforms in place uh, in order to support organizational learning for organizational change. Organizational change comes to every organization, whether it's the pandemic, uh, whether it's Blockbuster having a literally a 10 month window to move to a different type of media platform versus VHS tapes. They decided not to and they didn't want to bend to the will, if you will. They stayed the course. They didn't want to hear anything about it. And they you know, I think there's one left in America. OK, standing. The point is that resilience through your business is what's going to get you through that hard time. There were a lot of people who supported organizational learning and the whole organization was learning leading to that. And when you look at those kind of things, that's why they pivoted their business model. So we don't have to travel everywhere to people. We can do virtual consultations. They moved to that immediately, that platform, and they got their whole system organized to that. And they persevered. Were they making as much prior to and these on-site visits or things they did with clients? Perhaps not, but they didn't have to shut the doors. They may have to downsize, but they still kept moving. And now coming out of the other side of the pandemic, some of this will stay. Maybe they'll go back to offering in-person uh, consultations and things they do one-on-one -on -one to build relationships. But I think it's about being flexible, but more importantly, it's about collective resilience within your team that sees you to the other side. You know, and I, and I truly love that. Now, you know, when I talk to people, you know, that have lost businesses, marriages, um, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, it's you know, in our mind, you know, we can either realize that failure was an event and not a lifestyle. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people think, well, just because I failed at, you know, whatever it is at, you know, at business, at um, marriage relationships, doesn't mean that you're a failure. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about the difference between failure as an event, you know, because um, one of the greatest coaches of all time says, you know, if you, it's okay to lose a game but it's not okay to get to have a losing mentality. Correct. So talk to us the difference between having a losing, uh, have, taking a loss and having a losing mentality. Yeah. I think, <clears throat> I think it becomes a being in the scope of reality, right? Um, there was a commercial one time I saw that Michael Jordan uh, cut. It was for Nike and he, 
in the beginning, you see him walking in to a stadium. He's got a game there, right? And he's walking in, and as the, the voiceover is him, and he says, <clears throat> you know, he goes down the list. He says, I've missed 9,000 shots in my career. He said, I've been given the ball, you know, 1,322 times to make the winning game shot, uh, you know, the winning shot for the game. And, and I've missed, you know, 475 times, right? Um, you know, he, he goes through this whole list. The, the point is, you're not going to hit a bullseye every time. Okay, that's an unrealistic expectation. Your goal is to hit it, but you have to be okay in that was a bit off and you learn from it. And what you learn from it makes you stronger when you come back again. And I think it's about that resilience to keep pushing forward to say, I'm going to do it again. You know, Michael Jordan, you know, it, in my opinion, growing up watching Michael Jordan play, I, I just genuinely believe that he is the greatest of all time. Just the attitude he took to the court, the, the desire to win, putting in the work, uh, and, and his whole backstory was amazing. But his point is well taken that you're not going to make every shot you take. But it didn't stop him from keep, keep taking the shots. And I think that's the mindset you have to adapt. Otherwise, you're, you're destined to just, you know, sort of wither up in the corner and say, well, what's the use? And, and, and there is a use because you've got to keep plugging. You've got to keep trying. You've got to keep pushing forward. And I think when people understand that and they accept that is that's just life. You know, you, you didn't write the book. It's just that's the book of life. You're not going to make 100 percent of the shots you take. But the point is, you keep taking the shot. Like Wayne Gretzky said, you know, yeah. you, you hit 100%, you, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Absolutely. Yeah. So now yeah, I, I love that quote. You know, last two questions. Yeah. Um, how does somebody, how do we get in touch with you? How do we find you? How do some of the corporations, if they want to get together and, and, and help their company become more resilient, how do they find you? Well, <clears throat> the, the easiest way to find us is um, we are at resiliencebuildingleader.com. And people say, well, that, that's, a, that's an awful long thing to type in and stuff. Here, here's the easiest thing you can do. You can go to Google, type in the letters R-B-L-P, Romeo, Bravo, Lima, Papa. Type that into the Google search bar. Hit enter. The whole first page will be the Resilience Building Leader Program. And at the Resilience Building Leader Program, we offer three levels of certifications for frontline supervisors, middle managers, and senior leaders in organizations. This is a, we are actually RBLP, we are the credentialing body, much like PMI is for the PMP, for the series of professional leadership certifications. And we not only work with companies and organizations. We have RBLP certified leaders who are in the federal government. Um, there's a lot of companies out there that will fund professional certifications. And we are also an approved vendor for the Department of Defense, what they call the COOL program, the Credentialing Opportunities Online, where every branch of the service puts a bucket of money aside every year uh, for every service member to earn a professional certification. And that money is, is anyone can apply for it. Uh, you know, each service has their little different nuances, but 
that money is there and we're actually a certification you can earn. And we've had, we've had many, and I say thousands plus of people from all branches of the military who have earned their resilience building leadership professional certification. And that's the easiest way to get in touch with us. Um, this organization was founded in 2018 by our CEO and founder, uh, Dr. Gene Coglin, who through his dissertation, and you'll find this interesting, we talked about resilience a moment ago, Richard. Through Dr. Gene's research, what he found was he started digging in for individual, he found individual resilience. He found a lot of research and data on that when he was writing his dissertation. What was interesting is that individual resilience research in our country was done on children, right? Then he started digging more and looking for collective resilience. He couldn't find the first instance of any type of research on collective resilience until after 9-11 in our country, right? Which, which speaks volumes. So the things that you being in the military learned about collective resilience and working as a team, you know, creating a positive climate, doing all of those things, develop cohesion, provide purpose, um, those kind of things we knew every day when we came into the formation, right? But you'd be surprised that there just wasn't a lot of research. So he went to work, he did thousands of interviews, he did years of research, and then through a group of subject matter experts who met, he knew in his very soul that this needed to be some sort of formal certification. Um, so there's a lot of certifications on the market, uh, PMP, SHRM, Agile, Scrum, and all of those things are great. Uh, I know they're great, but they're about processes. They're not about building collectively resilient teams. And this certification certifies through your years experience, education, background, knowledge, leadership experience, and it codifies this into a professional certification. So folks can go to RBLP, um, take a look at our site. And if your organization is interested or if you individually are interested, uh, you can simply go to apply, uh, complete your application, and we'll respond back to you to let you know what level of certification you were found qualified to pursue, and then uh, take it from there. Okay, so now, you know, we live in, we're in a very crazy time right now. We're, mm -hmm. you know, we're tired of COVID, so. Yeah. Uh, and we have parents that are, you know, driving Uber at nighttime just trying to put food in their kids' mouths. Right. We got grandparents homeschooling kids. So, you know, if I ask the average person to do something in seven days, they're pretty much never going to get to it. Right. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is struggling, whether personally or professionally, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to right the ship? I, I, I think it starts with <clears throat> looking yourself in the mirror and asking a question, do you want to win? Because I think once the mind is engaged and you have said, yes, I want to win, that is the main driver because now becomes the action. Okay, what do I do to win? Who do I reach out to? Who can I contact to help me with that? But once you've committed to the first step moving forward that you want to win, you want to persevere, whatever your word to put in place there is, then I think the rest becomes step-by-step -step actions, right? But if you haven't committed to the fact that you want to win, whatever that looks like for you, 
I think that's the biggest hurdle you need to get past because that's a hard question. It sounds pretty easy, right? Uh, I do want my kids to eat. I do want to do this. Do you want to put in the work that will take? Yes or no? Yes, I'm willing to do that. Okay, great. That is the most critical step. Once you have committed to that action, now you start putting the plan together. You start reaching out to your resources, your, your friends, neighbors, colleagues. Uh, you, you get that assistance. Don't be too proud to ask uh, because that's the biggest downfall a lot of people do. I've got to do it on my own. No, you don't. And I think that's the truth is in life, we never walk alone. There's always someone there for us. We just need to ask. And sometimes we're embarrassed to do that. But you've got to think of the greater goal, which is, yes, I want to win. I love that. Now, I only ask this question of certain people mm-hmm. or one of them, um, because, you know, I'm a believer. You know, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Amen. Um, you know, and, and first, you know, I should have thanked you, first of all, for being a brother in Christ, you know, which means we're going to be together eternally. Amen. But my question, you know, is this might be for somebody else out there, that one person that's struggling, um, you know, because they say that if you feel if you don't feel close to God, you're the one that moved. Right. You, know, you know, he stays the same He's yesterday, today and, and forever. So right. if somebody's out there struggling with their faith, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to get closer to God? I, I think the one thing you can do, whether it be on the phone or in person, reach out to organizations who are specifically created and designed to be what I say that, that link, right? So God's over here on the right. You're over here on the left. You're going, I don't think I can cross that bridge. There are people in the middle of that bridge that exist out there in every community that say, give me your hand. I'll walk with you. And, and I think it goes back to the original question you asked me a moment ago. You have to say, is that what you want to do? Yes. Reach out. Because they exist every day to make that connection to bring people in, to pray with them, to do things that are important for, for their spirituality. And that's what they do. And they're awesome at it. You just need to have the courage to step forward and reach your hand out. And someone will take your hand. I promise that'll happen. All right. I love it, brother. I want to thank you so much for coming on. So guys, if, if you need, if your company needs resilience, I mean, we're, America's starting to come back. But there's certain, you know, parts of our com- our uh, companies that are still <clears throat> trying to get back into the swing of things, re-engage with the public. Definitely reach out to my brother. <coughs> Thank you. Um, Double B Creates. If you guys love listening to podcasts, definitely check out Double B Creates. And Mark, I'm going to see, I might, I'm going to try to get you on their podcast also. Yeah. Um, definitely great. check Double be creates podcast and i just want to thank you guys if you guys got anything out of this please leave a comment yeah um and what we can do and what we can do better and if you want to reach out to my brother just leave a comment all right thank you so much my friend and have a beautiful week all right richard thank you so me on i really appreciate the opportunity and it was a great great time just speaking with you so thank you so much god bless you brother and hopefully the relationship just starts today Absolutely. God bless. All right, brother. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. 
please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.